Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is shamanism in Mongolia. This will be my third interview with Gail Hasen. And for those of you who haven't seen the earlier interviews, I'll be linking to them uh, in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. You might enjoy viewing them first. This is also, I will say, the first of a series of three interviews on Mongolian shamanism with Gail. You see, in the year 2014, she received an honorary doctoral degree from the Mongolian Academy of Sciences for her work with shamans in Mongolia, which is quite unusual, quite unusual, considering that Gail never went past, I think, the ninth grade in school and certainly had no prior college education, but she's an extraordinary person. And we're going to start this journey about 10 years before she received that degree and go through it step by step. So as I say, this will be the first of three interviews on Mongolian shamanism. Gail lives in Sebastopol, California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gail. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. This is our third interview. It's a pleasure to be here. I think that one of the best ways to talk about your experience with Mongolian shamanism is to go back to the very, very beginning, which, uh, as I recall, might be 2004, when you hosted some Mongolian shamans who came to California for a conference there on shamanism. I'd love to start from there because it's really how it all began. And we have to, I have to thank Ruth Inga Hines, who's not with us now, but if it wasn't for her, I would have never made this Mongolian connection. So we want to thank the fact that she had a conference then called Shamanism and Alternative Modes of Healing, which was held at the Santa Sabina Center in San Rafael and continued for over 30 years there to a point where I actually became one of the organizers also when she passed on to keep her conference going. So it was 2004, and I think I had been to one conference of hers, and I was just getting to know this powerful woman, and she was a Berkeley professor, and she was starting the beginning of the conference, and she said that these Mongolians were coming. And she said, but unfortunately, the translator has not arrived. So she looked at me and said, Gail, you just go up there with the six Mongolians, get them settled into their rooms, get them fed, let them know what time they're going to be presenting, and have them ready down here, ready to go. And I just looked at her in shock, like, how am I going to communicate to Mongolians. I don't know Mongolian language or anything. And she said, don't worry. Well, with a German accent, she said, you will do it. <laughs> so I went upstairs to the little uh, bedroom where they were all standing there. And I met Zorz Batar, who was the shaman that was coming from Mongolia. I met Bat Bayar, who was the 
professor of uh, a historian professor who was coming from the University of Mongolia, and he was the man in charge of sort of bringing the whole congregation there. And then came uh, Zoris Batar's wife Bayarma, and then other people were like brothers and sisters. I can't remember all the names of who was there, but there were six Mongolians. I said to Zoritz Batar, you need to do this presentation, so you need to unpack your luggage. And when I went to unpack his suitcase, which the outside, it I know had originally been a Samsonite, but it was covered in incredible leather that had been painted with all scenes of Mongolian horses and archery and animals, and it was a beautiful luggage. And when I opened it up to show them how we have to put the clothes away and get settled in, I discovered that Zorik Batar really didn't have any clothes in there. He only had all his shamanic tools. And there were many things uh, you'll see in the photos. He has his headdress, which is all from a turtle's head, and then um, decorated all in different beautiful feathers. And he had a full bird, which you'll see in photos on his back, and numerous other drums and um, uh, special shamanic tools. Uh, I do have, which I can show in another episode, we do have some sacred tool that you blow through this bone in order to rid negativity. And he had um, a lot of arts, is the Mongolian name for incense. And this incense is made from the juniper trees, and it's it's a very, very wonderful smell. And after you're used to smelling it everywhere you go in Mongolia, this is a smell you can you will smell in other places. And so he came, he did a presentation, and even though we had no translator for part of this, he was able to interact with other um, guests that were in the conference and do some direct sort of healing and connections with them. So they did a beautiful presentation. He did some powerful drumming. And uh, we were later, I think when the con when the conference had a translator, we were able to hear some information about Mongolia and what he was doing. Well, I think it's fair to say for the benefit of our viewers that even back then, you were already quite familiar with the Huichol uh, native indigenous shamans from Mexico. Yes, and I'm so glad because the experiences I had being with them at 10,000 feet elevation in a sacred area called Las Latas, where all the sacred ceremony is held, and there's a, a special building there where the roof is changed every five years with the new peyoteros that come in. I think all the experience of being with them and no electricity and no running water and no modern anything prepared me for what it would be like to travel around Mongolia, which came in the future. <laughs> so this was not the first shaman I had ever met. It was the first experience with Mongolian shaman and Mongolian people. And so I was so thrilled having them there that I said, if you're here for a little longer, would you like to come and stay at our house? Because I have a guest house and plenty of room for all of your family and come and be with us. And I'll take you to Armstrong Woods and take you to the ocean. So I, I took them to the top of Armstrong Woods so they could see forever forest and endless, endless forest. And we traveled around to all these places together with no translator and I gave them my, you know, Northern California tour. We definitely all bonded like family. 
during those days that they stayed with us. And uh, we shared different foods and different uh, music. Well, he returned in 2005 for a second visit. And when he came in 2005, he came alone to do a presentation by himself at this conference. And I go to pick him up. And I'm on the telephone, and there is no Zor's guitar. And everyone has exited the airplane. Everyone is out. I'm on the other side of the wall. And I get this phone call. They say, this is the U.S. Customs. We have this gentleman here, Zorik Batar. He's dressed in these unusual clothing, and he has no other uh, articles of clothing with him but animals and other things, and he keeps telling us he's a shaman. They said, we don't know what a shaman is, and we don't know why he's here with all these things. We want to send him back to Mongolia. So I get on the phone and have to give a complete description of what shamanism is and what shamans are and how this shaman has been invited to come and present at our conference and they're they're holding us up and he needs to get to the event. This went on for about two or three hours and I finally, he was released to me. <laughs> it was only a wall between us, but the look in his eyes about how I got him in here, he was very, very happy because the idea of getting on the plane and going back to Mongolia was not what he wanted to do. When he gets off and he out, comes out to me, he has this gift in his hand and he gives me this gift and it's a gold ring. And I can't understand why is he giving me a gold ring and gold is an expensive item and I would not understand. So because I had no translator, I didn't know whether we had just married, you know, I didn't know what exactly was this gold ring about. It was only in my second trip to Mongolia that I found out that when I had asked for incense, I wrote the word incorrectly and it meant gold. And so he brought me a gold ring thinking this is what I wanted. He wouldn't take the gold ring back or any money for it because he felt it was still part of the exchange. But I would have never asked someone to bring me something expensive like that. And we continued on our same way of in, you know, connecting and not having a translator, but really being able to communicate well together. And in fact, while he was here on that trip, he went back home. And it was shortly after that, 2006, that I received the official invitation from Bat Bayar and Zoris Batar saying, please come to Mongolia. There's a special event happening here in July, which happens every year called Nadam, N-A-D-A-A-M, I think is how it's spelled. And this is like a reenactment of the games of Chinggis Khan and the competitions of the times of Chinggis Khan. And so when I heard that I got invited to go to Mongolia during the Nadam festival, and then it also turned out to be the 800-year celebration of the Mongolian Empire, which the entire country was in celebration for. Nadam, the whole country does every year in July. It happens every year, year after year. But it was coupled with this other huge celebration. So I headed out with suitcases full of stuff because I always like to bring things to give children wherever I go in whatever country it is. And I'd like to bring things that are from here that I've made and stuff. So I had two suitcases, but they were filled mostly with gifts and toys and books and things. And I was met at the airport by Zord's Batar's wife, Bayarma. And it was a very long, it's a very long, grueling flight to get to Mongolia, just in case anyone's interested in going, just be prepared for this. You can only get there through Beijing or through Korea. 
So you're either flying through Seoul or you're flying through Beijing. And one of those are your places you're going to have to hang out until there's a flight to Mongolia. And they're not, they're not, back then there were not flights every day. So you had to kind of get your things all synced up. So by the time I got there, I was exhausted. And she meets me with, it's called the hatag. It's a scarves that you'll see all over Mongolia. And the colors you'll see that are tied to sacred and ceremonial in places where they feel spirits have shown themselves. They'll either be rocks or just a post or just a cement, you know, cylinder. And surrounded around that, you will see hundreds and hundreds of tied hatags, these blue scarves. And the blue meaning associated, I believe, with the sky, because in Mongolia, the sky is so important. And when you're in Mongolia and you're in the vast lands there, all you are is land and sky. It's it's a magnificent place. And I've come because not only is there going to be a celebration, but we're also having a conference. So there was like so much activity. So I was going to be there for, you know, three weeks, three, three and a half weeks to be able to do all the things that we had planned. Besides me giving it a, a presentation at a conference. At this time in your life, I think we're talking 2006. Would you say at that point, had you been initiated into any shamanistic traditions? Not at all. The only thing that I had experienced was the conference was an amazing conference because she brought shamans from all over the world. So while you had a Mongolian shaman at two o'clock, at six o'clock, you could have one from Laos. And at uh, four o'clock, you could have one from Vietnam. They could be from Ecuador. So you had you were exposed to... Uh, you know, it was like having a, a, a smorgasbord of shamans all in a three-day period. The the ones, though, that of all those conferences I attended, I never had this strong a connection as I did with the Mongolians with any of the other shamans who visited. But I did experience their ceremony or a blessing from them or a healing or um, a cleansing. And I had experienced that with the Wichol when I had cancer and I was doing healing down there on my cancer, I worked with shamans there on cancer. So my experience was never that I was going to have anything to do with becoming a shaman. I was just absorbing the shaman experience by being with them, having getting healed with them and receiving different gifts that they all kept giving me, which ended up becoming all part of my shamanic tools and clothing. But I didn't know when it was being given to me that that's what would be the future. In fact, I'm wearing this Dell right now from Mongolia that was given to me by um, Khanda, who was a beautiful female shaman who came in 2018, and we did a presentation at Sonoma State University. And when she got home, she wanted me to have this Dell. It came by way of, it got shipped in some package of things to Mon from Mongolians that was all going to Chicago with a special note in it that someone who would go to California would take it. So it came by way of numerous different people. And then one day I got a call and it said, I have something for you that I need to drop at your home from Mongolia. And that's how this outfit arrived. <laughs> well, on that first visit, I had met with the parents of Namuna. Namuna was the first. She was a young woman, beautiful translator. And her parents, I came to learn later, but I didn't know at the time, were very well-known artists of Mongolia, both her mother and her father. 
and they are known for amazing paintings. And also she does yarn, things with yarn. So she does weaving. Her husband does oil paintings. And it came to my door, which is what it's done the two times I've been to Mongolia. A gift arrives the night before you're leaving by a courier. So this courier comes and this beautiful silk blue brocade uh, Dell is delivered to me and it is exactly fits me like a glove because she had measured me at some point and said this was a, just a gift for me to have. I didn't know that some years later, like let's see, that was 2006. I was initiated in 2011. So five years later, that same silk brocade dress became my shaman clothing, which it now is forever. And I would never like wear it for um, just a get together. It's a shamanic thing to wear, you know, in a ritual or a blend, blessing or a cleansing. So it's fair to say that at this point in time, as we are speaking, you have been initiated into Mon a particular branch of Mongolian shamanism. Yes, into the Buryat. Uh, branch. There are many branches. There's the Tuva, there's Darkhad, there's uh, Kalkan. And the one thing in common with all of them is they're divided into two different types of shamans. It's the black shamans and the white shamans. I was initiated as a white shaman, and those are shamans of healing, shamans that are doing blessings. The dark shaman or the black shaman which often they have one particular group, I think it's the Darkhad, they only use a triangle-shaped drum. They get rid of negative energy, and, you know, they're there to use to, to prevent wars or to do things about wars. You know, they were considered the protector of negative, where the white one is definitely more my speed. <laughs> you know, doing blessings and that kind of thing, not warding off the, you know, the evil eye. <laughs> During your visit in 2006, however, this is long before you uh, received the initiation. Oh, yes. This was long before that. And all I experienced was meeting shamans there and having experiences with the shamans that were there. And there were some, some powerful people that I met during that time. And there's not a lot of, you know, in our conference, shamans specifically came there. But when you're walking through the streets, it's more of a specialty thing when all of a sudden a shaman appears. When a shaman's in downtown Ulaanbaatar and he's in the plaza or the square, people will come up to him and say something in Mongolian or, you know, have an exchange. Because you have to remember the shamans were in hiding for many, many years under the um, Chinese and Russian uh, rulings. So it's only been in this, you know, the, I guess it's most it's a little bit before the 21st century or in the 21st century that they were able to come out and be seen in the public again. Well, the fact that you received a doctoral, an honorary doctoral degree from the Mongolian Academy of Sciences for your work with these shamans, uh, which it says very specifically on the documents you've received, suggests that at this point in time, the Mongolian people treat the uh, nomadic uh, tribes within Mongolia and, and their shamans with a great deal of respect. Well. I think shamanism it was is more of a, a religion there. It was shamanism and Buddhism. 
So when I traveled there, I never saw a church. And I remember asking Zoritz Batar and the family, I said, so I come from a Jewish background. Do you have any Jews or temples or anything like this here? And they laughed. They said, no, we don't think you're probably the only Jew here in the country. <laughs> I don't know if that was really true, but at that time, it might have been. In fact, I watched the change in the country, which I can talk about in our in another interview about what it was like to be there in 2006 and then return again in 2011. The country was turned around from where I had been. When I went there in 2006, the only place to really shop for things to bring home for my family or gifts or any of the things you might even need was what had used to been the communist department store. And it was only, was no escalators or anything. You just had to go up and down stairs and it was just one giant big building. And in it was all different little departments of things that you could buy to bring home. And there was a, an area where you could buy fox hats and, you know, Mongolian Dells and Mongolian tchotchkes. But that was the only place then. And it was also the only place if you needed to buy a suitcase or something. When I returned in 2011, it was filled with malls with fancy, you know, high end shoe stores and handbag stores and Gucci. And I mean, it was a whole nother world that that was not there when I went in 2006. And in fact, in 2006, they were just beginning the giant plaza, which is where you'll see all the events that are held in Mongolia in the capital are all done in this plaza. And they were just unveiling this huge statue of Chinggis Khan when I was there then. They were also constructing something that's right on the outskirts of town in case anyone decides to take a trip over to Ulaanbaatar. I highly recommend you go to this place. It's the largest horse statue in the world. And when I was there, only the platform was built. But when I was there in 2011, we got to see the completed statue of Genghis Khan on a horse. And it's sort of a Statue of Liberty kind of thing where you climb up a ladder and you go inside the horse belly and you go inside through this whole, you know, statue of Chinggis Khan. And now they have little gears, which is what we call yurts. So there's like a camping there and it's all there. You know, it's like a little hotel and things are becoming like made for tourists to come and visit there. But when I was there, these things were just beginning. They were now complete, but then they were beginning. And the cost of things were a lot less money than also when I was there. Well, you're describing Mongolia as a, a, a sparsely populated, poor country with beautiful scenery and celebrating the 800th year of what they call the Mongolian Empire, which, as I recall, was perhaps the largest empire ever established in world history. It ran all across Asia and into Europe. Uh, it was an extraordinarily powerful empire uh, at one time. Not only that, but I read somewhere that one, I think it's one in 100 people I'm not sure exactly my memory. I think it's one in 100 carry the DNA of Genghis Khan. And that that's how, I mean, that's how much his, his, his I don't know if it was his sperm spread worldwide. <laughs> but when I was there, I went to see these museum things of Genghis Khan and they still have, they, they had in there the jaw harp, which I have one here in case your audience would like to see it. The jaw harp, 
was being played since the times of Chinggis Khan. And the jaw harp is what all the shamans used to call the spirits. And Chinggis Khan was considered a shaman. He was a shaman and he did so many things that are not written in what we know. We only read about, I guess, the violent history of Chinggis Khan and him taking over the world brutally. But if you read the history of Mongolian shamanism written by a Mongolian, then uh, you will get a completely different view of him, like teaching students and going around and doing a lot of things to help people and also doing shamanic work. So this is the jaw harp, which we have right here. It's just a little piece of metal. And the sound and spirit is supposed to come through this end and come out here. And you make a sound like this. So when doing shamanic things that I do here at home, I always use my jaw harp. And my jaw harp is the thing that seems to evoke information, spirit. It's just a very powerful little tool. And I'm very grateful to the Mongolians for giving me numerous ones of these so that you can find like the right one for you. Sometimes a different one feels better. But for some reason, they recognize that I seem to have an ability to play this thing. I'm not musical at all. And so I have no musical abilities of whatsoever. And I don't consider this like music, which is probably why it works for me, because it's really connecting to an energy. And um, uh, when I've been do it, doing it with people or friends or family that come to my home, after I do this, they say, I don't know what that thing was, but it was incredible when those sounds were coming out. So I know that people are receiving what the message is through this jaw harp. So I'm very, listen, I'm so grateful to the Mongolian people for what they've shared and what they have opened up for me in ways of information about shamanism and turning me into a shaman. I I don't know how to thank them for what they did, but they only seem to be doing always these wonderful things. Like when I received that award and then I received another award from them and, uh, and then I received a Mongolian initiation, which we can talk about in another show, but these were all like, I feel like I'm being honored by these people and I have, and I never know why. <laughs> I think uh, for any of our viewers who haven't watched our first two interviews, uh, we can at least set the stage for what is to come by mentioning the fact that you had a, an experience of working in the psychic field going back to your teenage years and by 2006 you had already published some papers in parapsychology with Dean Radin, one of the foremost parapsychologists in the world. You had worked with Russell Targ. You had show, demonstrated in the laboratory, I think, uh, quite an extraordinary amount of psychic functioning. Yes. And that was the beauty when I was in Mongolia and and something that I've always wondered if a researcher has ever worked on this, because I'm not, you know, really a, a, a researcher as much as as um, uh, the people that you're talking about. But I've had a few experiences with them. The research when we were together 
there was so many times, you know, the translator would be a young, it was always young people who could speak English in Mongolia, but they had not much practice. So it was a little difficult, but we would get, get through the conversation. Every time I would go to tell Bat Bayar something, or I would go to tell Zords Batar something, I would say it in English and he would say it, the other man would say it in Mongolian, and the translator would look at me and say, there's nothing to translate. You're both saying the exact same thing at the same time. You're in each other's minds. So I have had this experience now with numerous cultures, Japanese, Weichol, um, Mongolian, where we do not speak the language of each other's minds, but we go inside each other's head and we telepathically, it's clearly telepathic, we understand what each other is asking or trying to tell the other person, but we have no actual words in our mind that are coming in their language. So when I'm thinking in English and they're knowing what I'm going to say, they're not hearing it in English. When I'm in my mind and I'm thinking, oh, they want this special uh, herb I know we got from Siberia, I'll go get it. They, they, they've said that in Mongolian. I have no idea, but yet I seem to know in my mind what they're asking for. So I find that, you know, like when I've done telepathy with people that speak English, it seems very simple to me. I'm going inside and I'm reading their mind and I say the thing they want to say or I'm reading the thought. But I always figured because we're in English. But, but it's only dawned on communication I've done with people in other cultures where we have no translator, but we truly understand each other. And it's not all charades. So I don't know if any researcher has done investigation into what is it there that's happening, because that's a, like a telepathy, but a, another level of telepathy where the words are not... You've opened up a, an area that ought to be researched, and someday when parapsychology has more funding, I'm sure people will look into this. It's a fascinating question you've just raised. One thing I'd like to ask you, Gail, I think is very important in your story, is that while you were in Mongolia on your first trip there and you traveled around the country, you became very ill. I believe you were at a temple, as a matter of fact, and it struck me that this was like a shamanistic illness that had come over you. That was Erdin Zoo. Erdin Zoo is in the city, I think it's called Karkorum, something like that. None of my pronunciations are correct. Everyone should know that right away. Uh, and that is the, considered the birthplace in the 13th century of Chinggis Khan, and that was the capital and the center of Mongolia. Ulaanbaatar is now the capital. So we drove out to this monastery that was built in 1540 or something. And I wouldn't call it sick. It's something else that happens. But on the outside, it might look like I'm not too well. <laughs> when I was going there and you see you're in the middle of nowhere and you've been driving forever, and all of a sudden, you only see this huge white-walled monastery with 108 little stupas all around it. I think they're stupas or some sort of things. And you go inside these big, huge wood doors. And as we entered, the monks were carrying another monk who was very ill out of the 
they were carrying him bodily, lifting him up and rushing him out the door to get him to, I don't know, a hospital or a doctor or somewhere, but there wouldn't be anything nearby. And I looked at him and I saw him going in. And then the next thing you know, I'm sitting in a room. I was told that I'd missed all the chanting. And that's what I came there to hear because these monks chant every day and it's a very powerful place. And it turned out, no, they were just on rest and they were going to be chanting again. So I was brought to the little room where the monks were chanting. And when they brought me in, by the way, while I was in these places, my psychic visions were very powerful all the time. So I would see Bat Bayar before he was going to come, even though his car hadn't even arrived. I would see things that were going to happen before they happened all over when we were in Mongolia. And I think that's something about being in a place where there's not a lot of interference and also being a mother and family person at home, I'm always busy with a million things. It's the first time I'm alone out in the wild world of Mongolia. I have a whole different connection with my spirit and my, my so it becomes very strong for me, the experiences that happen there psychically. So... I was with the translator we had then was a monk who had been raised as a monk in Nepal and he had been then trained to become a surgeon. So he went to India, became a surgeon and then ended up coming to Mongolia. I'm not sure if that's where he had his education, but somehow he was a monk, he was a Mongolian surgeon. He was uh, from Nepal. He was Tibetan. And he was this beautiful man, Norbu. And before we got to this temple, I said to him, you know, I have these strange things that happen to me occasionally. And when people see it, they kind of freak out. So I just want to tell you ahead in case any of this happens not to be worried. It's normal for me to all of a sudden start shaking and having weird voices and tongues coming out of my mouth of different, you know, sounds and things. And I said, and I never know when it happens, but it happens. And I just happened to precognitively tell him this before we went to the temple. So I'm sitting in the place where all the men are chanting and I'm having vision after vision with my eyes closed. But I'm battling on the side, wanting to be pissed at these Mongolians because we're sitting here in this sacred temple where they've been here for 10,000, well, not 10,000, there used to be 10,000 monks there, and we've been here, you know, it's been here for ancient times, and they're in the temple with the ceremony going on, talking on their cell phones, and phones are ringing, and cell phones are going like this. I'm thinking, who does this in a sacred place? And this is your your people, you know? So I'm feeling like I want to yell at the guy. Could you stop put your cell phone already and let us enjoy this? But I say, no, no, this is all part of the Mongolian experience. They don't mind if the monks are chanting and the phones are ringing. So I close my eyes and I see visions of Bat Bayar coming when he never came there with us. I see um, the head monk. You can clearly tell who the head monk is. He's sitting kind of in the middle on the pillows and the other monks are all around him. And I see him take, I don't know, you might know what the name of this is. I've seen it in a lot of Buddhist things. It's a little metal thing, like a little rod like this. And it's not too big. And then at the end is two kind of round. It's not really. A dorje. Yes. 
So I didn't know that's what it's called. But while I'm sitting there, I'm seeing that this door J thing is going to be put on my head like this. And I'm saying to myself, that's weird. I don't even know what this little metal thing is. And I'm sitting there and I'm having visions of family members who are were ill and all kinds of things are coming to me. And the Mongolians come in to get me because I said, just leave me there for an hour and come back after the chanting. Well, when they come back to get me, they go to lift me up and my legs have turned into jello and they're shaking. And I realize that this thing that I've come to call Kundalini starts happening and I know what's going to happen. And I'm sitting there and they walk me because you have to leave the little tiny, it's a tiny little room. You have to leave the tiny temple a special way. And then they gave me some money that you put in front to give them the money. And as we go through exactly like I envisioned, the head guy comes up to me and takes the door J door J and puts it right there on my head, right in my third eye, just like where I saw in the vision and they start to take me out, but I can't walk. So my legs are kind of dragging along and they get me out the door. And I said, just get me out where I can lay down. And by then I couldn't speak anymore. And since I had told Norbu ahead that these things happen to me when I go to, it, it's happened to me in my own home and in other places, but it happens really powerfully intensely when I was in Merida, Mexico, when I go to like I was at the temple of where they studied sexuality or something I ended up having the orgasm experience there so when I go to these places things happen to me spontaneously that I can't give a lot of information about but I know that something powerful is going on in this one I was seeing I won't get try not to be emotional but in my visions there, I was seeing the slaughter of all the monks that had been killed in that place. And I was seeing that these monks were such spiritual beings, they all saw that they were going to be slaughtered. And so I had been told that they're still to date looking for treasures that have been buried in the mountains and rocks and underground in the place where we were. It's where they put tankas and sacred things because they knew everyone was going to be killed. But what I couldn't understand was why they let themselves be killed. And it was bothering me in this experience that they could have fled or they could have, you know, but that, that was not it. They were in this sort of like, this is what's going to happen. This is where we are. It was a very spiritual whatever. And I was feeling the loss and the deaths of all these people while I'm laying on the ground there. Oddly enough, the shaman ran away. <laughs> but by all ran away. Everybody seemed to be freaked out because I can't speak or respond when I'm in that condition. But Norbu, who I had told this would happen, just laid me on the ground and just held me and just let the whole process continue until it was done. And sometimes it takes anywhere from one and a half to three and a half hours for this thing to happen. And when it was finishing and I was, and I was starting to come back into my body again, the Zords Batar arrived with his wife and they were like, I will teach you how this can never happen to you again. And you know, you won't see the different people that, you know, forget about the people who were killed here and all this, you know, and I felt like, 
I was experiencing what was real there. I had no reason to run away or hide from this or learn how to get rid of this. It's just, it's, it's heavy on my body and very exhausting. You know, on the next day I really have to rest because it feels like electricity is rushing through me, through my spine and up out my head in tremendous, you know, like more than 220 volts going like this through you. So it does take a lot physically out of you and you need water and rest after that experience. So I was lucky to have Norbu who was, you know, just gently, you know, so I, I've been held by unusual people when these things have happened in different places. I had this experience once with Russell Targ, who did thought I should have been hospitalized, didn't know what was going on. I had this with a amazing man. I was at, um, uh, what's his name? Charles Lindbergh's estate in uh, Maui. And a friend of mine was a caretaker for him. So I was sitting on the lawn in front of where his wife had wrote Gifts to the Sea, a book she had written. And this man, Marcel Mueller, who had saved the lives of thousands of Jews during World War II, found me sitting there having that experience going on because, as I said, I don't know when it's going to happen and I can't move when it does. And he held me gently and just shared all these spiritual thoughts and things as this process was going on. So I've had this experience with knowledgeable people sometimes and other times I've had it with people where it just scared them to death, you know? And I'm not able to say I'm okay until it's over, you know? <laughs> so it's an unusual thing to happen. I don't think that many tourists have that happen when they go to Erdin Zoo, but it's hard to say. But um, it's something of the power of that place. And that, and me being sort of an open channel or vessel or something, and these things occur. I think you also mentioned an example of one of the monks came and, and gave you a hug, and, and that seemed to fill you with energy. When we were at Lake Hovskull, I'd love to share this, the fire story because this was very amazing to me. Lake Hovskull is one of the 11 pristine lakes left in the world that is not polluted. When you're there, it looks like a small ocean or something. It's so huge. And we had gone, you know, we drove over Hill and Dale all over across the country with no buildings or anything to get to this remote place. And it's considered a sacred area because across from that lake is where the reindeer shaman live. And they live in teepees and they are considered the oldest shamans in the world. It also makes me wonder who came over the Bering Straits and how teepees ended up here in North America. And I'm wondering, did it originally come from these um, uh, reindeer shamans? And they don't even speak. Uh, they have their own dialect. You know, that's that's a, not Mongolian language. It's another language. And they live, um, you know, reindeer or how they ride. They have wooden saddles and there's no electricity or anything where they are. Well, our goal was to go over and be with them, but there was a very bad storm, so we couldn't cross the lake. And instead, we saw dots of, like, fire on the hillside, so you could see where they had, like, had their evening fire. And that night, when I went to sleep in our gear, it was me and two other women, uh, Lisa Raphael, who I believe you know, and uh, this other woman, Lauren. So those were the roommates. And we're in there, and I'm thinking about how I had hugged, I'd gotten hugged by one of the 
shamans whose name I I'm not sure if the fire shaman was a Dorvad or which exactly uh, which which uh, group he was from, but it was the one that represents fire. And he hugged me at the end of the conference we were at, and I had where we had spoken, and I had never been. It was very strange for a shaman to come out of nowhere and just give me this huge tight embrace. And I was like, wow. Well, when we end up here at the Gare a couple of days later, I have an experience that I regard as meeting the invisible shaman of fire. While I'm in there sleeping, I wake up because the sounds inside the gear and the little fire that they had built us to keep us warm, which was safe and enclosed, it suddenly had become huge and was dancing on the walls of the gear. And there were all these sounds. And I kept looking at my two ladies that were sleeping and I couldn't understand. Are you hearing what they're saying in here? Do you hear the sounds that are going on? And I'm looking and everyone's sleeping and I'm feeling like I'm going to get scared that it's going to just combust and the whole fire is just going to explode inside the gear. Well, then I heard these voices say, this is the shaman of fire. This is your meeting the God of fire. This is what this is. And he's on the other side of the wall of where I was. And there was this vision of this very tall being that was the being of fire. And I felt so protected and no more fear or any of the things that were going on and an incredible amount of energy that was like whirling around like this inside the gear while the other two people were sleeping and I'm having this complete intense experience. And I was sure it had to do with being hugged by the shaman of fire, seeing the fire dotting across of the reindeer shamans and then sleeping in this next to this lake in this gear and having this complete experience like I was completely in touch with the fire and the element of fire. And it was very beautiful. So I guess it's fair to say that during your first trip to Mongolia, there were times when you yourself were very frightened that something bad was about to happen, and times when other people around you were frightened for you. They thought that something bad was happening to you. <laughs> there was those moments, and they were only loving and caring and wonderful. Um, I'd say some of the times I would be scared might be during some of the driving. <laughs> and I had a intense shamanic experience. I don't know if you want me to share that now, if we have enough time. So as much as I enjoyed Zord's Batar and his family, we had an interaction where I wasn't willing to become a, um, what is it? When somebody becomes a guru and you become their devotee. Devotee, right. And uh, the shaman uh, commanded a certain amount of respect that he had from the women around him, but I wasn't willing to put his shoes on or comb his hair or do some of the things that the women wanted to do to serve him, which was fine. But I felt that, you know, I was very respectful in honor of him, but I wasn't going to be his servant in any way. And he felt I was his student and I was supposed to do and act the way he said. 
And being the kind of personality I am, which any man who's been involved with me knows, I'm a very stubborn, set-in-my-way, independent woman, and I am not going to let somebody tell me what to do. (laughs) So when that experience occurred, I had left the... I had been sleeping in the apartment with the shaman and his family, which in itself is in a very unusual experience because there's no doors on the room. So there was never any privacy. And I needed just a couple days in a hotel. Back then, I was a lot younger than I am now. And I was having my period. And I just needed to be where there was hot water. And I just needed some comfort for like two days. And that was all I wanted. Then I'd be ready to go back and jump into everything else. So uh, Zoris Batar got very upset that I was going to leave his house and go stay in a hotel for two days. So while I was in the hotel, it's at night and it's this beautiful suite. It was the Chinggis Khan Hotel. And it was, Bat Bayar had arranged it all for me and they put me all in the room and put everything in there for me as they took such good care of me. And I'm in the room and all of a sudden I'm getting this fear like I have never had before that I'm being invisibly attacked by a shaman. And I guess this is when you call when you're dealing with negative energy. And he was angry at me and I have a feeling that he might have drunk a bunch of vodka that night and went into some kind of a tizzy and was sending me these really negative, scary vibes, and I wanted to go home that minute on an airplane because I felt so scared that I was going to be taken down somehow in this invisible world of shamans. And so I calling my husband, which isn't easy to do from Mongolia and back then, and I'm telling him, get me on the next flight out of here. I got to get out of here. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. And he's looking up and he said, there's no flights. I can't get you out for days. (laughs) So I said, I don't know if I'm going to make it here. I'm not sure if I'm going to survive this night. And here in the middle of the night, and my anxiety level is really intense. And I'm feeling like knives and daggers are coming at me. And I'm getting so scared. I have all the lights on. I have, you know, I don't know what to do. And in my hotel window on the seventh floor, a bird flies into the room late at night. And the bird flies around the room, looks at me, and flies out. And then I'm sure that this this is some shamanic thing going on. So that's when I finally get together and realize I have to be strong and fight back this energy. And believe me, when I tell you, I, I was scared shitless. I really was. I had to compose myself. I had to remember that nobody was going to hurt me, that nothing was going to happen, and that I had to stand up to whatever negative energy was coming at me, whether it was true or not, or whether I was making it up out of thin air. Why would I make something like that up? It was happening. And I finally was able to go to sleep, and all of the things in the room calmed down, and I woke up in the next morning, And I went to the Gobi Desert. (laughs) And I did not see Zord's Batar till the end of my trip when I came back, because I was traveling with Bat Bayar and and, uh, Ayuna and his family. And when I returned, all of Zord's Batar's family came to see me in the hotel, because I was going to leave the next day for the airport. 
And all the family was like, we don't care if he's mad at you. <laughs> we think you're wonderful, you know. <laughs> and he came to see me and he apologized to me. And we had this lovely, like, reconnection of like, you know, this is who I am. I'm a shaman and this is who you are, Gail, that, you know, I'm not going to be what you want and you're going to be who you are. And uh, let's just be friends and everything be good and wonderful. So we had a lovely, nice, you know, reconnection and healing and apology. And um, but it was one of the most powerful encounters I'd had on an invisible level. And I I think that must have prepared me for all future things I was going to start learning about shamanism. So in, in effect, that's how your very first experience in Mongolia ended. And I know there's much more to follow. That's why we have two more interviews planned so that we can really go into detail and uh, to how you became an initiate in, into Mongolian shamanism. Well, I do want to say that in my three weeks that I was there on that first trip, uh, Zoris Batar's family and Batbayar's family, each family took me on separate excursions that were phenomenal. They really rolled out the red carpet. They really took me to so many sites and places, and I got to experience their culture. I got to be you know, seeing trucks full of sheeps that were, you know, all go going off to become Kashmir. I was able to go in the Gobi and drive and drive forever till I hit the tire. I hit a rock. In fact, I, <laughs> I have the little rock here, which they gave me as a souvenir to remember the day I blew the tire up and got us stuck in the Gobi for, you know, 24 hours. <laughs> they, so even though there were these incidents where I was hungry because I needed some of my own kind of foods, even though there were things that were uh, unusual in the driving because there are no roads and you went around here and there, I felt in that trip the closest to my soul and opening of connection to earth and sky and spirit that I felt in any place in the world. And I felt these kind of feelings in many places, but the vastness there, there's a, a New York Times wrote a, a travel quote or something about, if you wanna go somewhere and get lost forever, just go to Mongolia, but you will be well cared for, well loved and well received. Well, Gail Hayson, what a joy to share this adventure with with me and with our viewers. I'm so delighted that we had this time together. I'm so thrilled to know that we're going to have future discussions and go even deeper into the world of Mongolian shamanism. Once again, Gail, thank you so much for being with me. Jeffrey, I can't thank you enough because I launched a podcast September 1st, and your show is the one that has given me the most views of anything of anywhere I've ever been. So I, and I'm getting such comments and validations that I feel like I'm on the right track sharing my stories with the world. And my goal is only that if they help someone in any way or something comes of this, then that's a beautiful thing. Indeed, it is a beautiful thing. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.